0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their new books in ethics, metaphysics, political philosophy, philosophy of mind, epistemology, and many other areas. Today's interview is with Michael Martyr. Iker Basque Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of the Basque Country in the Basque Autonomous Region of Spain. We're talking about his new book, Plant Thinking, a Philosophy of Vegetal Life, just out from Columbia University Press. If animals have suffered marginalization throughout the history of Western thought, then non-human, non-animal living beings, such as plants, Have populated the margin of the margin, a zone of absolute obscurity in which their mode of existence, from a philosophical perspective, is not even questionworthy. So writes Martyr in the start of his new book, Plant Thinking, a book in which the metaphor of groundbreaking has actually never been so apt. Contrasting his view with the Aristotelian perspective, in which plants are basically defective animals, Martyr initiates inquiry into the nature of vegetal life on its own terms and into how human life currently encounters and how it should encounter this radically foreign mode of existence. Martyr's goal is nothing less than a sort of Nietzschean revaluation of values when it comes to vegetal life. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Michael Martyr.
1: Hello. Hello, Carrie.
0: Hi. How are you?
1: I'm fine thank you how are you
0: good welcome to uh, welcome to new books and philosophy
1: thank you it's very good to be talking to you Carrie. uh
0: i'm very excited about about talking about your new book uh plant thinking a philosophy of vegetal life this really is i mean the the term groundbreaking has probably never been so apt i think and at the the very beginning of the book you you sort of start out by with a with a very apt quote i thought um saying that if, if animals have suffered from marginalization uh, throughout the history of Western thought, um, then non-human, non-animal living beings, such as plants, have populated the margin of the margin. Um, and, uh, you know, this book, of course, is, uh, as I understand it, aims to kind of um, upend that, that attitude And uh, provide a sort of revaluation of the nature of plant life, and then, in consequence, our own relationship to to plant life, vegetal life. Um, So, before we get into the uh, the book itself, it would be great if you could give us a little background um, on your own philosophical career, um, and and how you came to write this book.
1: Right. Uh, Thank you, Kerry. So uh, at least as far as I can tell, and in these questions, sometimes an outside perspective is uh, uh, indispensable or even more important. There is no direct link between my earlier work in philosophy and my interest in plant life. Uh, My first book was a discussion of the notion of the thing uh, in Derrida's deconstruction. And I particularly worked uh, there from the phenomenological perspective, uh, even though it was not the traditional classical phenomenology, which is uh, uh, oriented uh, toward human experience of the world. Uh, the second monograph was on the phenomenological once again and existential underpinnings of Karl Schmitt's political philosophy. Uh, and, and so much of my work until planned thinking has been situated at the intersection of phenomenology and political philosophy. Uh, but as I mentioned, th- this was not really a very traditional human-centered phenomenology. Uh, so what I found out uh, from my study of, of Derrida's writings on the thing is that it turned out to be something very strange. It turned out to be neither animate nor inanimate. It kind of displayed an intentionality of its own and aimed at us while before and after we Try to grasp it or try to direct ourselves to it. So it it had to do uh, quite a bit with the phenomenology of non human uh, existences, sometimes what we consider to be even inanimate existences. Uh, And so that led to a kind of broad interest in the intentionalities of uh, uh, other modes of existence and forms of life than our own. Uh, And uh, of course, as as, uh, um, we know, in contemporary philosophy, there has been uh, much work done on animal life in the last couple of decades. work that has been groundbreaking and that has questioned many of the uh, traditional sort of humanist uh, uh, orientations to to what it means to be to exist to think to experience and so on uh, but my sense was that it's it's uh, relatively easy to relate to animals based on a sort of sympathy though we tend to sympathize or empathize with some animals and not others uh, that there is a distinction there uh, and uh, so all of this was in the back of my mind while I was reading uh, a excellent book by Claudia Baraki titled um, Aristotle's Ethics as First Philosophy Mm -hmm. Uh, and and when it came to Baraki's discussion of the vegetal soul, it suddenly occurred to me that this was a mode of subjectivity very much ignored in recent philosophical discussions so we uh, moved through a kind of uh, uh, broad questioning of humanism, of the meaning of a purely human subjectivity, to asking what exactly can we really say about uh, something like animal subjectivity but the subjectivity of plants, which would be a kind of corollary to uh, uh, or the corresponding notion to uh, Aristotle's vegetal soul, has not really been discussed. And so that, uh, that was the impetus, the sort of theoretical impetus that um, I received uh, uh, to carry out this work. Uh, of course, the persistent and deepening environmental crisis is an ever-present reality for us. And uh, I think there is a kind of ethical obligation uh, for philosophers to to respond to it uh, uh, thinkingly, uh, but uh, to uh, for me both this crisis and the very term environment are too big and too unwieldy and too too abstract somehow, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and so when we talk about the environment we we already we create a kind of totality and abstraction from which we are quite distanced. So uh, the the and plants are much more concrete than that. They can. I think, act as concrete entry points into the environment and what it means to be in the environment. Uh, uh, so that that was another consideration as I was beginning this work, that we could respond to envi- the environmental crisis starting from the figure of the plant that, that is a much more concrete and manageable entry point into this set of issues, at least in to my mind.
0: So you... Um... Uh, one of the ways that you describe your approach, I mean, you mentioned Aristotle, and there, there is um, so there is sort of two questions. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll ask them, you know, one at a time. I guess starting with the Aristotle question. Um, mm-hmm. So for, a, for, a of, for for a lot of for a lot of philosophers, um, at least, um, you know, questions about the nature or the be, the being of plants um, mm-hmm. really is, you know, just what Aristotle says, and and you know, the nutritive soul. And right. um, so one of the one of the things that would would help to kind of start us off would be to um, uh, to contrast um, to to describe the as you put the the violence that Aristotle's thought um, has unleashed you know on plants um, mm-hmm. and the and and to describe the the point of view from which you know we sort of see plants as as defective animals, as you put it. Um, uh, So if you could describe that framework that you are um, that you're responding to.
1: Right. So uh, I I completely agree with you, Carrie, that Aristotle's is probably the best known conceptualizations of plant life. Uh, But that's not to say that other thinkers throughout the tradition of Western philosophy did not consider uh, vegetal beings on the, let's say, on the margins of their texts. And it is also true that they position themselves in one way or another vis-a-vis Aristotle. Uh, for the most part, they uh, they sort of place themselves as... Um, uh, they, they accepted his basic tenets, so they, they simply developed a little bit further his theory. And uh, the example that comes to mind is, for instance, Avicenna, uh, who spun elaborate hierarchies out of uh, this, the simple structure, let's say, of, uh, of Aristotle's vegetal soul, Orthothrepticon, which for him included simply the capacities for nourishment and reproduction. Right, and then, as we move uh, uh, closer to to our period in uh, uh, in the philosophical history and especially toward the nineteenth and twentieth century, uh, there is a a, a turn to uh, a more unexpected i would say twist on uh, the aristotelian insights and I'm thinking in particular of uh, uh, Nietzsche, for instance, who, in his own notion of the will to power, uh, relies whether consciously or not on these capacities. Uh, for nourishment and reproduction, along with growth uh, to to develop uh, his own basic ontology um, so, um, so 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 that 's to say that uh, Aristotle has been uh, i agree with you a uh, completely uh, insuperable figure I would say in in the history of Western thought when it comes to plants, but also when, when it comes to to many other things now uh, to be fair to Aristotle, I would not want to dismiss him altogether. And uh, in, in fact, I, I think that uh, uh, he uh, displays a kind of crucial ambiguity on the subject of plant life. So let's take the positive side first, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Aristotle tells us that there, there is no life, no animation of matter and so on without the vegetal foundation for, for this kind of a movement, without the dothrepticon. So, uh, which means that to think life, be it the life of animals or of humans or of anything whatsoever, is necessarily to think of plants and something else in addition, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's the kind of, the the foundation for all thinking of life is is plant life. He made it uh, uh, absolutely essential. But on the more shadowy side of, of his philosophy, this is where we come to the issue that you are raising, Kerry. Um, Aristotle dismisses these capacities of plants, which to be sure, are indispensable, and which we share with them, he dismisses them as the more basic, uh, as as capacities that are more basic and less developed than those of animals and humans. And so as a result for him, plants become deficient animals that are uh, tethered to the ground through their roots, that are defenseless, exposed, dependent, and so on. Uh, And what happens as a result is that plants and animals become grouped under the same category of a living thing, zo'on so in, in, in Greek, uh, and humans are, of course, understood as political or rational animals. So the living thing is is the animal, the plant is a kind of deficient animal, mm-hmm. and humans are political or rational animals. But uh, the deficiency, where, where does the deficiency lie here? It's, I think, in the fact that for Aristotle, the plant is an animal minus locomotion and sensation so it's it's like an animal but what makes it unique are these deficiencies are these lacks that other animals uh, do not really display and i think that uh, what i zero in in, in uh, zero in on in plant thinking is this minus is this uh, negativity that has been uh, uh, that has determined our attitude toward plants for millennia now uh, so that they have been these figures of uh, lack of sensitivity, lack of motion. It's always under the sign of lack and minus that they are understood. And I think that Aristotle is to a large part uh, uh, to blame for that.
0: So um, in contrast to this, I mean, I um, uh, in the first part of the book, you mm-hmm. look at various ways in which in which vegetal life is is different from from animal life in a in a positive mm-hmm. manner not not as a lack but as you know these are certain ways of of you know in the nietzschean way re- revaluing the 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 mm-hmm. um uh the aspects of plant life that are just they're just radically different they're not they're not lacking they're just different mm-hmm. um and um, so there's there's a there's a lot of these different features you know uh, that you mentioned, and I thought it'd be it would be great if you could um, give us a sample of some of the most important ones. Um, you know, I uh, you know as I went through, I was looking through. You have you know the the, the pattern of growth is different. The the um, the infiniteness of of growth, um, wow. the headlessness of, of plants, their their radical dependence um, on the other. Uh, and, and, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. so if, uh, I think, uh, if, if I'll, I'll, let you choose sort of which of those features you think would be most important to kind of, um, uh, to outline for us.
1: Right, uh, yes. So uh, uh, all, all of these are features that are definitive of uh, the, the plant's mode of, of being. But if I were to force, uh, force to choose um, probably the, the most remarkable of these features that um, actually reunites many of the others under the same umbrella, I, I would uh, have to say that it's the plant's modular gl- growth and development. Modular growth and development. And what, what it means is that plants grow by replicating already existing structures. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's fairly easy to grasp this. Pra- uh, plants grow by branching out, and uh, so they, they repeat uh, the leaves and the branches, and all of these, uh, the, the architecture, as it were, of, of the plant is an infinite uh, or seemingly infinite replication. And uh, of course, those plants that do not have access to uh, sexual means of reproduction uh, reproduce through clonal development, right, which is uh, the mechanism for growth and reproduction alike in, in these kinds of plants. Uh, and, and so this is, I think, for me, this is the crucial point where plants differ from uh, most um, uh, animals and indeed from anything that develops as an organism. I would be very uh, reluctant, in fact, I would be opposed to calling plants organisms because uh, an organism is essentially a totality, Right. So, in in an organism, the organs do not have any sort of independence. They they are subordinate to to the whole, and um, uh, not only that, but uh, most of the parts of the organism are already there in Uche, uh before the animal is even born. So it's it's all sort of anticipated, and this is how we we tend to think of of a concept in Aristotle or Hegel as well. It's a kind of organismic thing where even before before the concept is developed. Uh, its many facets are already there in, as abstract possibilities. Uh, now, a plant, of course, has its own genetic makeup as well, but the concrete shape that it takes as a, 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 in, in the end of its, uh, or throughout uh, its growing, uh, in the course of its growth, very much depends on the environmental circumstances. and We, we could think of the neighboring species that determine uh, to what extent pl- a plant would thrive, the amount and the angle of sunlight, uh, the distribution of the minerals in the soil, and, and so on. Um, and, and so wh- why do I think that this this difference is so important, aside from the fact that it, it does not follow this organismic uh, development of animals? Uh, I think it's because uh, if, if you Let's say you're fond of technological or informatic analogies, then we could say that the plant's modular structure, or what plant scientists themselves now refer to as modular intelligence, uh, is like parallel processing reiterated manifold. So it's like uh, e- each branch and offshoot, and even a leaf, is uh, similar to a highly sensitive antenna that catches environmental signals, uh, and and, um, and and often uh, the the. The function is is replicated, so there there is no novelty uh, there. The, uh, it, it is a kind of in, infinite replication of of, of the function, uh, and. Uh, then, of course, the question is, what what about central processing of information, right? Because uh, plant scientists are very much enamored with, uh, uh, with, with the cognitive and, and especially computational models of uh, thinking about plants. And uh, their next question is, uh, there, there is this dispersed modular intelligence, but is it uh, uh, processed centrally? And this is a great enigma in the plant sciences uh, themselves nowadays. So uh, it seems that there is some central processing, but the exact mechanism has not really been uh, pointed out. Yet. And there are, there are some hunches whether it's hormonal flows in the plant or even long distance electrical signaling. But no one really knows whether, what that central processing is and whether it actually exists. And I think that even if such a mechanism for central processing of, of information existed, it's obvious that plants are highly decentralized uh, uh, living beings. And this modular kind of development highlights that for us. And that there are parts that are exactly not organs, as I like to to reiterate, are much more prepared to lead independent existence if they are severed from the whole, which is not really the case, of course, with uh, with animal organs. And this this has already uh, uh, been known, in, at least in the 19th century, when plants were described as loose assemblages or almost societies of of living beings uh, uh, that 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 could be severed from one another without. Uh, uh, inflicting uh, irreparable harm, uh, either on the whole or on the uh, member that is severed. Uh, And and so uh, just to to conclude this this line of thinking, I would say that this modular development in an animal would have been taken as a sign of something monstrous. Mm -hmm. If we imagine uh, uh, an organ or a series of organs replicated by branching out infinitely, it would be really uh, in an animal, it would be a monstrosity, but uh, in a plant, this is the way that plants live, this is the way they reproduce and grow, and this is the way they they interact with the environment as well
0: um, and then how about um, another another aspect that you that you also emphasized was the mm-hmm. um, the radical dependence and and the different sort of dependence i suppose of of plants on um, on what surrounds them on their environment could you could you say something about that as well?
1: Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, I, I mean, w- w- when it comes to animals, uh, uh, most of them that are that are not sessile uh, animals, animals that uh, c- can move by changing place, mm-hmm. they can flee from from dangers, right? And they ca- they can uh, also move toward uh, resources. Uh, if if plants are are really growing in the same place, even though they they can modify that place in in various ways, uh, they they really they have no such Option to to uh, to flee from danger or to uh, uh, move to dislocate themselves toward uh, a place where resources are available. Of course, there are always exceptions, actually. I'm just thinking about an example of a stilt palm, uh, which uh, uh, in the course of its lifetime actually moves uh, uh, quite a bit. It, it grows new roots and then kills off a part of the trunk and then moves to with, with, with uh, detecting areas where resources are, are um, richer in the soil and, and moves along. Hmm. Uh, uh, like that, so so, there are always exceptions. We can never generalize anything, uh, especially in the case of plants right uh, but but this is this is the uh, the general case that they they cannot uh, really oppose themselves to the environment in the way that an animal does by withdrawing from it, and so they have to work with the environment much more than than animals right uh, they they have to um, uh, as it were, grow with their environment and uh, uh, respond to challenges by, uh, if not by fleeing, then by changing something. Very often, changing something in their own physiology or even morphology, uh, and um, uh, and 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 so. In that sense, uh, Hegel was actually the thinker who paid the most attention to this feature of uh, plant subjectivity, as he called it, because he he said that plants uh, lack the oppositional structure of subjectivity. They do not oppose their other. Uh, and um, for him, that was a sign of that was uh, at the end, really, because to to be a subject for Hegel is exactly to oppose the other. Right. And then to overcome the opposition and move to the next stage and so on mm-hmm. with plants. And in, insofar as there is no opposition to the other, they they are just the the, the, uh, the very beginning of subjectivity is still very much uh, uh, bound to the inorganic world. Um uh, but uh, once again, the, uh, this is a lack, this is a deficiency from the standpoint of traditional philosophy that we can think of as uh, as a newly gained strength for us from from our contemporary perspective. Uh, and if we think of uh, context bound mode of thinking and relating to others uh, that that have flourished in, since the end of the 20th century in feminist thought, for instance. Uh, uh, th- then we can we can really use plants as a model for this, because plants do not oppose their their context they they work with their context and they are very much embedded in it so we can we can also think of uh, uh of of a less dominating a less domineering aspect of human existence as embedded in its environment and working and evolving with it rather than opposing it.
0: Um, yeah so um I mean by recognizing all these different uh these you know sort of, sort of very very fundamental differences in in the modes of being um, mm-hmm. um could you could you perhaps say a bit more about how how you think that you know recognition of these differences um, can help lead to a revaluation of you know of vegetal life, and I suppose, as you were just suggesting of of our own understanding of life and our relationship to to the environment. Uh,
1: yes, certainly. So um, I I would say that um, uh, the the issues that that uh, were for Aristotle um, uh, kind of uh, lacks and negativities uh, uh, become. Uh, advantages from a standpoint of, uh, from, from a point of view that um, is no longer attached to uh, traditional philosophy with its values of uh, uh, immutable being, of uh, a, a kind of uh, uh, foundation for for all being that is not uh, really affected by anything in this world. So if we are thinking of uh, uh, of, of uh, finitude, for instance, and the positive revaluation of finitude in twentieth century and twenty first century philosophy, then the, the figure of the plant is indispensable here, uh, especially not only finitude uh, in the sense of mortality, but uh, uh, but the kind of uh, Growth that supplants the uh, permanent and immutable foundation for being. I think we can we can certainly find that in in plants, Uh, and uh, so uh, in in that sense, uh, if the uh, thinking of uh, philosophical thinking after Western metaphysics, after the tradition of Western metaphysics that let's say culminated in in Nietzsche, uh, if if it were to to proceed. uh by returning to nature, what we now reconceptualize to na- uh, as nature, uh through uh the figure of the plant, then uh we, we can we can learn quite a bit from from plants, from their non-oppositionality, from from uh, uh their uh permanent metamorphosis or growth uh and um, uh plasticity and all of these features that we have been discussing here. Um
0: one of the one of the okay one of the um one of the things you mentioned just just a little while ago and and also um somewhat in passing in 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 various places in the book um was some of the uh, empirical investigations into into plant life um mm-hmm. you know com- plant communication and the use of hormones and 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 so forth um mm-hmm. did uh, did any of this research um uh well to to what extent to, did this research um inform your own you know sort of more philosophical investigation or um in into the nature of of plant life I mean, was there anything that you got from that that research that um that really guided you or or was it just did you you know, sort of approach this from a you know from hmm. your your own philosophical perspective and then you know, kind of found um, empirical work that that happened to, uh, to apply to to your mm. to your own investigation.
1: Right. Uh, that, that's a very good question, Carrie. I think that uh, as as one delves into the uh, uh, research uh, of of contemporary plant science, it's really mind-boggling the the capacities that uh, that, that uh, the scientists themselves find in plants, and um, according to their own admissions, what we know about plants now from scientifically. Is uh, a very minuscule uh, sort of portion of what can be known about them. That we, we know maybe two or three percent of what of how uh, how plants actually work and uh, uh, their their mode of living and so on. Uh, but uh, I, I would say that their research has influenced me quite a bit. Even though I, I came to it seeking only, uh, as you said, the kind of confirmation of my own philosophical position, uh, in the end it, it ended up shaping my own thinking as well. So. Uh, I think that the relation between my research and contemporary plant science is a kind of two-way street. Uh, And and the way it worked is that I, I At least I hope, and I, I have been told by some plant scientists that uh, I'm providing them with a kind of uh, overarching uh, theoretical framework that they have been lacking uh, for their own empirical investigations. And um, uh, I myself am drawing a kind of uh, 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 both an inspiration to further questioning of what plants are and what they can do, and evidence for for my own uh, a philosophical position from them. Uh, now that's not to say that um, uh, plant science is a kind of uh, uniform field. In fact, for more than a decade there have been uh, very heated debates going on between uh, plant scientists who are, uh, who uh, investigate what they call plant intelligence and their more conventionally minded colleagues that, uh, that deny the fact that plants are intelligent beings. Mm-hmm. And um, and 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 so uh I, I have been of course collaborating with the plant intelligence community and uh, uh i have received uh, uh great feedback from them and i've learned a lot from them at the same time
0: well let me um let me, let me follow up on on that um well there's a in the in the latter part of the book you you mm-hmm. you know after sort of giving a kind of anti-metaphysical uh or or uh overview of you know of the nature of plant being and the and the radical differences between that mode of being and and the mode of animals mm-hmm. um, you go into um, th- three distinct uh, perspectives on plants um, one is the what you call the the time of plants or um, another is the the freedom of plants. Mm-hmm. And then the third is the wisdom of plants, which, you know, sort of gets directly to the idea of plant intelligence. Um, and that's where you talk about, you know, plant thinking proper, as you put mm-hmm. it. Um, but I, I thought each of those things was was a very interesting meditation. So um, could you say a bit about um, the time of plants um, and the freedom of plants be- before we get to the, the wisdom of plants? Mm-hmm
1: right yes yeah. so of of course uh, i devote quite a bit of space to this uh, in in the book, and um, I can only highlight maybe some of the more interesting points from from this discussion, otherwise we'll have an audio book and not not an interview right <laughs> yeah but um uh yes yeah, so uh the the time of plants uh, uh, of course um uh i i um think of it in uh, as a kind of combination of three uh, temporalities. In, in general, I, I uh, claim that the time of plants is the time of the other. They are very much attuned to the uh, change of seasons, for instance, to to the external uh, uh, changes. And so they, they follow uh, this temporality, uh, let's say, of, of the world or of the planet in their own uh, growth and reproductive cycles. Uh, uh, so... Uh, In in that sense, it's in that sense that they claim that the time of plants is the time of the other. Uh, But then, of course, there there are uh, seemingly... Uh, conflicting moments within that. Uh, On the one hand, we have this uh, infinite uh, and seemingly linear temporality of growth, uh, that uh, uh, simple augmentation. And uh, uh, that, by the way, has been also thought of as a kind of deficiency both by Aristotle and by Hegel because for Hegel, uh, this linear temporality of growth is a figure of bad infinity, a kind of infinite series that does not complete the circle and does not return to itself. Uh so even their plans have provided uh, fodder for the um uh, for, for for metaphysical critique of, of, of their time. And then uh the, the other aspect uh, that 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 clashes with this is the cyclical uh, time of uh, reproduction uh, and iteration and repetition. Uh, so uh, it, it is this conjunction of the three uh, kinds of time: uh, the, the time of the other, uh, the um, infinite temporality of growth, and the cyclical temporality of reproduction that I, I focus on. Um, as as for the the freedom of plants. Uh, this is really we we have actually broached this topic uh, insofar as we we talked about the way that uh, uh, about plant plasticity, the way that plants respond to the environment, and they're not really. And in fact, they they are what the environment makes them, much more than the animals, right? Uh, uh, Because they they respond to such an extent to uh, environmental factors such as the amount of sunlight and so on. Uh, uh, So they are freed in that sense from the organismic totality, as we mentioned, right? They they are free to develop in these ways that are more unpredictable than uh, the development of of an animal organism. Uh, And uh, at the same time, they are freed from... What I would call the constraints of identity, so that uh, uh, that there is subjectivity which is uh, more anonymous, uh, which is um, uh, which does not really know the hard and fast differentiation between the self and the other. Uh, uh, th- that uh, I, I, see, I see that not as a sign of underdevelopment or, under, uh, um, uh, or or a kind of lack or deficiency, but as a, a promise actually for plant ontology, uh, a promise to, to free them from a preset identity and to become other to themselves so they can uh, they can produce another plant, or they can mutate as it were at the more abstract level, their kind of soul, nourishment and reproduction, can mutate into uh, uh, what what we think of as the, the, the subjectivity of animals and that of humans as well. So uh, uh, the, this basic stratum of, of subjectivity and of life is not just, uh, uh, is it, never left behind. It is free to become other to itself, as it were, in, uh, including uh, uh, its repercussions in us human beings as well.
0: So one of the things I'm thinking of as you, as you, as you're uh, talking was, Mm -hmm. um, uh, I thought of bonsai trees, for example, of, of, Mm. you know, a case where, um, I sort of wondered where, uh, there does seem to be more of a, more of a subjectivity than for, for, you know, just your plants out, you know, out in the open, Mm. um. And, and may, maybe, again, this is just an extreme, uh, extremely good illustration of, the, of, the, of what you just said about the, the dependence of the subjectivity on the environment, since it's mm. certainly not the tree itself that, that form its, forms itself into its shape, but it's, it's purely a result of, of what we do to it.
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. And um, and and this. Uh, uh, yes. Yes. Absolutely. I, I agree with you, Kerry. Uh, and um, uh, uh, in this category, we would have to include everything related to cultivation as well, uh, right? And we we know that we have co-evolved with uh, cereals that were cultivated since the, the dawn of humanity, let's say, wheat and rice uh, and, and, and so on. So uh, it, it would be difficult to to even separate us from, from those uh, plants that we have cultivated, we have been cultivating for millennia, because the, the influence, once again, has been uh, uh, double. It is not just that we, we have cultivated these crops, but they have at the genetic level... Altered uh, us as well, right? So, uh, uh, in in that sense, cultivation can certainly be taken as a as a sign of a diminished freedom of, of plants. Uh, but uh, uh, but but then, their sort of subjectivity erupts where we least it, right? How is it that uh, that uh, 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 a stock of rice would uh, change? Human genetic makeup, but uh, th- this is really the case so uh, uh, so, so in in that sense um, uh, uh, cultivation, the transformation of plants, and the channeling of their growth has been uh, a kind of root of, of culture of human culture itself right and we we tend to think of culture in relation to particular plants uh, that that are cultivated for instance especially wheat and uh, the wines right they, they are oh, yeah. bread and wine are are the the, the archetypal symbols of, of culture uh, right so um, so yes much of what we think of as of our own culture is also a transformation within within vegetal life that we ourselves have affected uh, but we continue to be affected by it as well in ways that are not maybe consciously or completely intended by us
0: yeah so, um, so maybe we should get to the the, the final um, sort of uh, aspect that you focus on which is the, the wisdom of plants um, <laughs> and to, to the the nature of, of plant thinking itself or as, as you also call it um, rhizomatic thought Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you could just say a word about about rhizomatic thought, um, mm-hmm. and and maybe uh, as you also you also mentioned that um, we should we should get accustomed to the idea um, that thinking is is not just um, the sole prerogative of 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 a subject or mm-hmm. or of a human being
1: yes yes so i I would say that um, uh, in, in in this sense rhizomatic thought is very much uh, uh, akin to uh, what I call modular intelligence, which is a kind of dispersed intelligence uh, or or dispersed uh, uh, sensitivity and attunement to the environment uh, and um uh, in 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 this sense. Uh, uh, we uh, can think of uh, a mode of thinking that does not involve uh, either ideation or representation or even cognition in the way that we attribute these to to human beings. Uh, so uh, the uh, underlying uh, sort of goal or aim would be to say that human thinking is a kind of is an example of thinking in general. Uh, it is not the gold standard of thought, but it is one mode in which uh, we can uh, think about thinking. And uh, the thinking of plants could well be another mode which m- in many ways interacts with us and uh, on which we rely as well, but uh, which which is uh, also distinct from our, uh, our mode of thinking. Uh, so generally speaking, this is what I would... Um, I, I would include under this category of rhizomatic
0: thought. Well, what what is then on on your view this sort of thinking in general before we get to the so in other words, if there's a, a if there's a thinking, mm-hmm. um, and then of which say the cognitive or representational thought of a human being is is one one species mm-hmm. and the non cognitive, you know, non representational. Mm-hmm. Um, Mode of plants is a is a different one. I mean, a lot of people would say, "Well, you're just you know kind of using the word thinking in a very in a very strange sort of way." So, mm. <laughs> I think it would be helpful if if you kind of um, maybe gave us some insight into how you understand thinking, such that it makes sense to talk about these two different modes of thinking as modes of of the same general um, activity.
1: Uh, sure. So, uh, what I have in mind is a kind of um, recovery of um, of uh, the insights of ancient philosophy. As we know, for the ancients, uh, starting with Parmenides, being and thinking were the same. So there was no uh, uh, there was no clear differentiation between the two, and different modes of being uh, involved corresponding modes of thinking. Uh, uh, all of that figures very clearly within the rich tradition of philosophies of immanence. Uh, that um, started with uh, uh, Plotinus and then went all the way to through Spinoza and Leibniz to Nietzsche, Brexon and Deleuze so there's this whole rich tradition of philosophies of imminence that, uh, within which uh, uh, th- this makes a lot of sense uh, uh, for uh, uh, Plotinus in particular uh, his idea was that um, th- everything and everyone in the world uh, uh, amounts to emanations of the one and Plants express or think the one, and he uses this word noesis. Think the one mm-hmm. in uh, growing and reproducing. So they think the one in its growing and reproducing aspect. And in fact, I would I would say uh, in retrospect that plant thinking is to some extent a translation of the Plotinian futiki noesis, uh, which is uh, uh, usually translated as growth thinking. But as we know, plants uh the, the Greek word for a plant, which is uh futo uh is the same as the word for growth right so uh it, plant thinking or grow growth thinking is already something that that has uh thought about of course I, I want to subtract the one from this equation uh but uh and it uh, uh uh, with, without the, the sort of plant thinking without the one is uh, what what I'm uh, up to here. And uh, so if we follow this this tradition of uh, philosophies of imminence uh, all the way to the 19th and 20th century in Nietzsche, Bergson and Deleuze, uh, then uh, we can also loosen the categorical distinction between thought and matter, uh, as well uh, uh, so that uh, uh, things become matters of gradation uh, uh, These distinction between thinking and non-thinking become matters of gradation as opposed to uh, just uh, uh, matters of absence or presence of thinking in that sense huh. um,
0: okay so um, let me uh let, let, let me ask you something about um, how we interact, how we interact with plants. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's kind of the overarching um, goal of the book, as I understand it, was is not just to provide a um, sort of new perspective, a new valuation of the of the nature of plants, and to. Um, uh, um, to emphasize, you know, the the differences, and also give them, and and also the the positive, fact uh-huh. uh, nature of, of these differences between plants and and animals. Um, how does uh, your your meditation? How do these affect um, uh, our interactions with plants? I mean, as I as I uh-huh. as I started to, I mean, one of the, um, uh, you, you one of the questions that i had as i immediately started reading was um well well, you know can can we eat them um Mm -hmm. and uh, you know for a for a vegetarian of course or or a vegan um Mm -hmm. you know this is this is a a critical um, issue and so um you know obviously you don't say you know we shouldn't be eating plants either Mm -hmm. um uh, but but so what, one of the issues was well h- how should we as individuals as human beings relate to to plants I mean is it is it still an ethical matter to be eating plants um, and and then the wider sense of you know the you might say the the violence uh, that we do or if if that's the right word um, mm-hmm. to plants in terms of altering their genetics. Um, you know patenting seeds and so forth mm-hmm. um, you know these are other ways of, of kind of interfering with vegetal life in a way that's using them as very instrumentally completely instrumentally mm-hmm. um, um, and then there's I guess the the broader one that that you bring up in the very beginning of the book um, and that you you mentioned at the beginning of the the interview was um, the whole the, the whole broad environmental crisis that we're in mm-hmm. Um so maybe if you could address um, each of those sort of more ethical issues and how your perspective on plants um, might inform each of those, the, the issue of, 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 you know, eating them, um, uh-huh. the issue of, of, of interfering with, with their own sort of growth patterns and uh-huh. nature, um, and, then, and then in the broader context of, of how we treat the environment.
1: Right. Uh, yes. So the, these are all crucial points. And um, I, I touch on them um, uh, briefly in this book and plan thinking and um, uh, in the sequel to this book titled provisionally plan doing the ethics and politics of digital life. I actually go very much more in depth into all of these issues and um, try to work out a, a coherent ethical approach, which would be consistent with this revaluation of, of, of plants. But uh, yes, these are all central issues. Uh, the, the issue of eating plants, uh, uh, of course, is raised very often. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the less sympathetic uh, readers uh, sort of think that... Uh, uh, that, that my position would uh, prevent people from ethically consuming any any plants or, or uh any of their plant products uh this is not uh, at all the case because uh the the idea is that uh plant being is a kind of constant self-giving and uh, uh so there, there could be uh various ways of uh interacting with plants but through nutritionally that do not uh, uh that that do not kill the entire plant and more importantly that do not produce whole communities of plants for the only per- for for the sole purpose of of eating them so as i see the problem is not so much in eating this or that particular plant but in uh, having so much disrespect toward the being of plants that they are very be- that, that that they are produced only for the purpose of consumption so as, as you mentioned Kerry this a totally instrumentalizing attitude is the problem for me, and it would involve not only individual choices, but even more importantly, a kind of uh, a collective decision on uh, how agriculture should be structured and uh, a collective reorganization of human relation to uh, uh, to plants uh, uh, around these dietary issues. I think um, uh, very recently, I think just. A week ago or so, uh, there was an article on the BBC about uh, uh, plants as the green machines and what needs to be done to increase the productivity of the crops to feed growing human populations. Uh, but I think the very... Uh, of course, the problem is there, and it's a, it's a very important problem, but the very framing of it is is uh, wrong. Uh, and this is where philosophers can come in and inform public discussion, I think. Uh, uh, not just saying that there is this problem of of the growing human populations and we, we we should just intensify the violence we have been channeling toward plants and that has backfired upon many human beings as well, including farmers, that we should intensify it in order to solve the, uh, the, the, the population problem. Uh, this this is not sufficient and this is going to lead us to a greater disaster, I think. Uh, and, and so uh, nothing short of an ethical reorganization of agriculture would suffice here. Uh, which would be informed by this idea that plants cannot be completely instrumentalized, that we have to respect their mode of being. And uh, this brings me to this idea of uh, uh, patented patented seeds in particular, uh, which uh, is, is a big problem insofar as the seeds that are patented by corporations such as Monsanto Are sterile, so that the farmers are forced to buy them year in year out. Uh, They they are not uh, the crops that grow out of these seeds are not going to produce seeds that can be replanted. So not only does this sort of commercial practice rob plants of their own potential of what has defined their potential for being for millennia ever since Aristotle the potential to reproduce. But it also uh, robs the farmers of, uh, uh, of, of of their means of subsistence because they have traditionally relied all over the world on uh, seed-gathering practices that would uh, allow them to replant the seeds. So this is one example in which the violence against plants and the violence against human beings go hand in hand and feed one another, as it were, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, you raised the, the, the problem of the Uh, environmental crisis, and uh, uh, as as I mentioned in the beginning of our interview, I I see uh, the meditation on plants as a kind of concrete entry point into the question of the environment, because if we speak and think of the environment as a whole, then we create this abstract entity which hovers somewhere in mid-air in in discourses, but with which we cannot really identify, we cannot. Point to the place of our where, where we live, to our gardens, to our fields, and say, th- This is the, the environment, right? These are all parts and small bits and pieces of the environment. But if we think about plants, then we can gain this uh, entry point into the environment or into what we call nature, for that matter. And uh, we, we can uh, think of uh, uh, new modes of relating to, to the environment and to, and to nature and to plants through uh this kind of rethinking of what the plants are and what they can do as well
0: so let me let me just um ask somewhat of a um uh sort of a challenging question i suppose um mm-hmm. so uh plants they they don't have the the sort of subjectivity that we think of as you know as a subject mm-hmm. um and so the, the the question is, well, you know, how much, you know, other than a very sort of, um, well, there's different ways in which one can respect uh, either a plant or, or the environment as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and one way doesn't really change the attitude towards it, um, which is just we need this For ourselves to keep our own existence going, Mm -hmm. therefore we have to treat it better because you know that's you essentially haven't. I mean, one has not essentially changed one's attitude towards it. It's Mm -hmm. still a matter of of sort of we need this, so we better take care of it, Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to the sort of respect towards something that we have as a as a as a subject. To use that word again Mm -hmm. of. You know, ethical respect. You know, being treated in a certain in a certain way. Yes. And um, I was just wondering. I mean, the the terms respecting and you know subjectivity can be used in you know in both those sort of different ways. And mm-hmm. uh, um, I was just wondering wh- which um, d- do you think that your uh, your work will is it necessary th- th- to promote one particular way of approaching things, uh, of approaching plants, of approaching the environment, um, you know, given what you say about the nature of plants? Um, or, you know, is, is it just that we've got a particular perspective, maybe we can learn to treat the environment and treat plants better, but sure. whether we adopt uh whether we we adopt the the respect in the sense of you know towards a separate subject is really mm. not all that um critical and especially may not even even be possible given that there is no subject there in that sense mm.
1: Yes, the, this this is, of course, uh, uh, a great question, Kerry. But um, uh, what comes to mind is, of course, the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, right? For Kant, um, uh, only persons could be respected and not things, right? So, uh, of, of course, there is a gap there where do animals fit? And then plants, of course, they are not really things and they are not quite persons. Mm. But if we dig a little bit deeper into Kant's philosophy, uh, uh Kant did not think that uh, human beings should be respected simply because they are living beings, because there is a living human being, it's deserving of respect. What is respectable in us is our transcendental subjectivity, is the fact that we're capable of reason and so on and so forth. It's not our bodily constitution, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. The materiality of the human being is not uh, an object of respect for Kant. So uh, uh, to begin with, for now for a very long time, we have not been able to respect a very important part of ourselves which is the embodied material aspect of our existence. And this is where our existence intersects with that of plants, right? Mm -hmm. This sort of unconscious kind of life, the uh, visceral and and embodied uh, reality of of living beings has been always excluded from the purview of respect, including in Kant himself. So uh, I I would say that if we learn to, even though this sounds uh, uh, like a very tall task to accomplish, If we learn to respect uh, plants as subjects, as unconscious subjects, with their own kind of freedom, time, uh, thinking, and so on, then perhaps we would also learn to respect what has been always denigrated in ourselves, which is this material, embodied, crude uh, Mm -hmm. aspect of our existence. And, And so... Uh, uh, So I I see it as an essential point to uh, say that plants are subjects, and that is why they're deserving of respect. Uh, And and, uh, there are different kinds of subjectivity, including the the, uh, unconscious subjectivity in us, that have not been respected uh, uh, either. Uh, uh, in in traditional Western philosophy, uh, and and so I see this as a bundle of issues that go that that go together. Mm-hmm. If we learn to respect plants as subjects, then perhaps we will learn to respect uh, the unconscious and material subjectivity in ourselves as well.
0: Yeah, I mean this is sort of goes back to to Plato, or mm-hmm. at least yes. yeah the yes, um, yeah go ahead
1: yes yes absolutely in, in in plato we we have this first um, uh sort of dramatic inversion of uh uh of of uh, uh the whole question of life with regard to the plant because plato actually thinks of human beings in timaeus he says this clearly the human being is a celestial plant and how so so he draws that uh, identity between plants and humans, but at the same time differentiates between them. What does it mean to say that humans are celestial plants? Uh, and, and he explains, humans have their roots growing out of their heads and connecting us to the world of ideas above us. Mm-hmm. So we're plants upside down, right? Or plants are humans upside down, which regarding uh, depending on the perspective you you, you assume. Uh, and and our soil and our ground to which we are bound together through these cognitive roots is the world of ideas, is the idiotic realm. Uh, uh, and, and, and so uh, everything, uh, and, and then plants and everything in the material world is just the, the upside down image of that and uh, uh, something, of course, that uh, is devalued and uh, disrespected as a result, because of their lack of of, of ties to the world of ideas.
0: Um, okay, so we're we're running short on time, and um, I guess before before we end, I wanted you mentioned um, you mentioned a, a new book that you're working on called uh, which I think you said Plant Doing. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to, I, I I did want to ask um, what your next project is if you are. Um, Following up this book with a, with a, with another one, which apparently is the case, um, or if there's other other avenues of research that you're pursuing.
1: Uh, yes, there are actually several avenues, and this uh, book that I have mentioned, Plant Doing, is one of them. Uh, wh- one of the, uh, uh, the the next book that is actually coming out from Columbia University Press next year is uh, titled The Philosopher's Plant: and in Intellectual Herbarium, and um, it it was really a fun book to to write uh, uh, based based on uh, my research on, for Plant Thinking. But uh, I intended it as a kind of introduction. Philosophy through the figure of, of, of plants, so that mm-hmm. from Plato to the 20th and 21st century, and culminating in the work of Lucy Rigorei, um, uh, I have lined up 12 different key philosophers and associated them with one figure of a plant that they either discuss explicitly or simply mention in passing in their work, and introduced their own ideas, both on plants and on their their main philosophical insights through. Uh, that that very delimited that that very concrete instance of talking about a particular plant, so uh, that that book, which is actually a collaboration with the French artist uh, Mathilde Russell, who produced fantastic uh, drawings for it, uh, is going to be out uh, in in one year's time. Um, and, and in the meanwhile, I'm also working on plant doing, as I mentioned, and in parallel writing what, a book I titled Phytophenomenology, The Plants Being in the World, which is a really a meticulous phenomenological description uh, in, uh, very much uh, aligned with the research in plant sciences of what it means for plants to be in the world, to uh, uh, relate to a place or to construct a place, to relate to other beings or to communicate with them and so on. So, these wow. are the different avenues and branchings out that uh, plant thinking has taken in the meanwhile.
0: Uh, well, it's it's it all sounds fascinating. I mean, I, I look forward to uh, to to the next book and the, and the one after that. Um, uh, but I I think at this point we're we're out of time, so I need to um, I need to stop. But. Um, uh, th- thank you very much for, for, a, for a very fascinating book and, and an uh, illuminating interview um, about, about plants.
1: Yes, thank you very much for a wonderful interview, Carrie.
0: Okay, bye-bye.
1: Thank you, bye.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Michael Martyr, Ikerbach Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of the Basque Country in the Basque Autonomous Region of Spain. We've been talking about his new book, Plant Thinking, A Philosophy of Vegetal Life, just out from Columbia University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you again for listening.